Hey everyone, welcome back for another episode of the Joy and Infertility Podcast. I'm your host, Kaylee Porter, and my hope is that you will join me on this road of finding joy even in infertility. So it's not every day that we get to hear from a woman whose birth story began with dictators, communism, and crazy government policies. But today we get to do just that. I'm interviewing Chelsea Patterson Sobolik, author of Longing for Motherhood. Not only is her birth a unique story, but so is her fertility diagnosis that came just 19 years later. As you can imagine, that's difficult news for anyone to receive. But as a, I mean, as a teenager, a young young woman, um, it was almost devastating for me. Um, so I walked out of that doctor's office with my life completely changed and dreams being completely snatched away and um, really entered into the greatest fight of my life with the Lord. After Chelsea's diagnosis, she says she entered into the greatest fight of her life with the Lord. But as you're going to hear, she decided to read through scriptures one more time, and she began to view her story through the lens of scripture. She got to know God in a way that she never would have if she didn't walk through this. In her book, she remains very tender and very empathetic toward the suffering and this longing that we all know. But Chelsea shares about the comfort that we have in knowing that the Lord is sovereign over everything and that his love is sufficient to carry us through any and every situation. I cannot wait for you to hear our conversation and get your hands on Chelsea's book. Like while you're listening, get on Amazon and order it now. Get it today. Let's get started. Hey, Chelsea, thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. So Chelsea, tell us a little bit about who you are. So I am, am a wife and an author, and I live and work with my husband, Michael, in Washington, D.C. I feel like you've gotten to do a lot of interesting things. <laughs> you've got to work on Capitol Hill and yeah. live in D.C. So what are some of the things that you've been able to do? It's truly such a gift, and it's so funny is not the best word to use, um, but I never um, imagined myself in Washington, D.C. Um, when I My degree is in foreign policy, and I actually plan to move overseas. Uh, my parents lived overseas for a while um, before children, and um, I just love anything international. And so I plan to move overseas. And long story made short, the Lord um, brought me to D.C. for a job um, six years ago, and um, I stayed. I met my husband here, and I've had the opportunity um, to work on Capitol Hill um, doing policy um, specifically on some of my passions, such as adoption and foster care, uh, the pro-life issue, um, so it's been really, really neat to work there. And then I currently work at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is the public policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, and our president, Dr. Moore, is actually very passionate about adoption as well. Um, he wrote a book called Adopted for Life and has two boys from Russia. So it's really neat to get to, um, continue my work, um, in the child welfare arena, um, doing policy as well. So that's a little bit of a snippet of what I've been up to. That's like so many awesome things. I feel like <laughs> that's so cool. You um, also, you mentioned your book, Longing for Motherhood. I've been reading it and oh my gosh, you're not just passionate about adoption. You are adopted yourself. So mm -hmm. 
share a little bit about how you came to the U.S. and your story. Mm -hmm. So my story begins um, before I was ever born. Um, My adoptive parents, Bobby and Christy, um, actually did not want children when they got married. They were not Christians. They got married quite young, and they just did not want children. They viewed it almost as an inconvenience. Um, But into their marriage, they both became believers. Um, I mentioned earlier they lived overseas. They actually lived in Africa, in West Africa, um, for a year helping to build a church. My father's an architect, so they helped build a church. Um, And as the years went on, they um, had a desire um, grow for children, and they tried to have children and couldn't and um, were actually in the domestic adoption process in the U.S. when um, several seemingly random people called them and said, hey, um, one of them was my dad's business partner. One of these people was um, my mom's sister. And and they called and said, hey, there's this documentary um, that's going to be on this weekend. We think you need to watch it. It's on um, Romania and the Romanian orphans. And after a few of these phone calls, they said, I guess we should watch this documentary. <laughs> uh, so they sit down on the couch with some of their friends um, from church, and they watch this documentary. And Romania was communist until um, December of 1989. The communist dictator was actually killed on Christmas Day. And after... Um, he was killed. The Western world went into Romania um, to just kind of see what was happening in this country. And uh, the dictator's name was uh, Ceausescu. And one of his um, policies um, when he was dictator was he was trying to increase his population significantly. And so he put policies into place that said, if you um, are age, if you're a female and age 25 and you don't have a child, um, your family could be fined a celibacy tax, which basically means you don't have a child yet. And because it was a communist nation, um, people didn't have money to be taxed. Uh, people were already standing in long food lines and, and whatnot. So um, there were all these babies that were born and then put into state-run orphanages because the families couldn't take care of them. So, and it wasn't just it wasn't just one kid. From what from what I understood, your book like you were you had to keep having kids, right? Mm-hmm. So he was trying to compete with the Soviet Union's population, which is just the most ludicrous thing ever. Um, so yes, he he really did have a state-run fertility policy. Um, So all these news organizations went in and just showed the state of Romanian orphanages. And the Lord put it on my parents' hearts that that's where their children were going to come from. So six weeks later, um, they were on an airplane um, with another couple from church going to Romania to adopt children, which... um, International adoption was a lot easier um, back then than it is now. But so they get to Romania. And one of my parents' biggest prayers was that the Lord would direct them to their children. There were so many children in need. Um, They just said, Lord, would you please direct us to the children you want us to adopt? And uh, the Lord graciously answered that prayer and he um, directed them to me. And um, by God's grace, I was never in an actual orphanage. Um, My parents got to meet my young birth mother, who 
just did not have the means to take care of me. Um, so they adopted me and they adopted another little boy from Romania. And then over the years, they adopted four from Russia. So there are now six of us. Um, and, and they didn't want kids. <laughs> exactly. It's so, so ironic. <laughs> your mom, your adopted mom didn't want kids. Your mm-hmm. bio mom basically you write had to choose childlessness mm-hmm. at night and she was 19. Yes. And then at that same age, when you turned 19, you got some really, really bad news. Mm-hmm. So tell us about that. Yeah. So I'll go back a little bit before um, I went in to the doctor's office for a routine checkup and um, I hadn't started my menstrual cycle yet. And, um, the doctor just said, we'll give it a little bit more time, but just keep an eye on it. Um, so I went in, um, for some more tests, um, right before I started my freshman year of college. And they said, we think we might know what it is, but we're going to do extensive testing, um, in a couple of months when you come back for Thanksgiving break. Um, so they told me, several different things they thought it could be. Um, and I went, I, then I started my freshman year of college and came home, um, for Thanksgiving. And one of the things they had told me that August was there's a tiny, tiny possibility that it might be something where it would be hard for you to get pregnant or you wouldn't be able to, but they said, that's not really a concern to us right now. So I come home, go um, for all these different tests, and um, the doctor walks in. I was there with my mom, and, and she sits down, and she says, Chelsea, um, we need to tell you something. And um, I could tell as soon as she walked in the room that it was not um, good news. And she told me that I was born with a somewhat rare medical condition that would prevent me from ever being able to have my own children. And as you can imagine, that's difficult news for anyone to receive. But as a, I mean, as a teenager, a young, young woman, um, it was almost devastating for me. Um, so I walked out of that doctor's office with my life completely changed and um, dreams being completely snatched away and um, really entered into the greatest fight of my life with the Lord. And mm-hmm. it, took years and years to, to wrestle through, um, through that and to ultimately come to being able to write and talk about it. Um, I'm 28 now, so a significant time has passed where I'm able to talk about it without, um, crying all the time or, or whatnot. But the first couple of years were, um, the darkest I've ever walked through. Well, and your diagnosis is, it's not just it wasn't just that you're, you had, you know, little eggs or just low fertility. You actually were born without a uterus. Correct. Correct. So it was completely a hundred percent. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I didn't even know that was possible, but it is. And I, did, I didn't either until I read your book. Mm-hmm. So like I said, it's a, a little bit of a somewhat rare medical condition. Um, but so when my body was being formed in the womb, um, my uterus just didn't form. So, so I can, so tell us about how you, and I mean, I know it was a fight. So how did you first react that weekend? Yeah. You found out? 
So I um, had grown up in a Christian home and um, I was the oldest girl of six kids. And so I was kind of the goody two shoes who knew exactly what um, my good behavior equaled rewards for my parents or this or that and transferred that over into my spiritual life without even recognizing it. And um, I walked out of the doctor's office and almost felt at a loss for words of how um, unfair I felt like the Lord was treating me because in my mind I had done nothing wrong to deserve um, to deserve that. And um, that Sunday at church actually was the hardest day I think I've ever walked through, even, even in some ways harder than um, that doctor's office. But we were sitting in church and the pastor comes up and announced that it was baby dedication at church. And um, I had to get up and leave church. It was, it felt like a slap in the face of um, a place church that I thought was supposed to be safe. And here I saw all these people that had what I would never have naturally. And so um, the first couple weeks um, I was very, very, very angry at the Lord um, because it didn't feel fair. And after Thanksgiving, I had to go back to school with this big secret that, um, you know, when someone's diagnosed with a more visible um, disease or condition, people know and people know to ask how you're doing or to be more sensitive and tender to you. Um, but I had this big thing that you just don't bring up in conversation. And so right. um, I really felt like I was walking it all by myself. And um, like I said, I'd grown up as a Christian and kind of gave the Lord um, almost a test. And I said, Lord, I'm going to read the Bible one more time. And if you don't show yourself and if you don't show up, I'm walking away. I really did feel like I came at a crossroads in my faith of um, do or die. Like either you're real and you're bigger than this or this is too hard and it's not worth it and I'm walking away from my faith. And so I read scripture through that lens of I've got to see you or I'm leaving. And God was so kind and so gracious to me um, in those dark hours um, there's a little, I, so I went to Liberty university and there was a little prayer chapel at Liberty that I would go to multiple times a week at night. And I would just sit there and, um, pray and cry and talk to God and read his word. And a lot of those conversations were pretty darn honest with the Lord of me telling him, um, exactly what I felt. But as I read his word, um, I discovered that I could pray like that because I saw um, the psalmist um, praying quite honestly to the Lord and um, expressing every emotion they felt to him. And I realized that um, I, I was entering into an actual relationship with the Lord instead of um, thinking I could earn his love and earn his favor. And as I continued to read his word, I um, came to that passage in the gospels where Jesus is telling his disciples what it means to follow him. And he says, if anyone would follow me, you would, you take up your cross and you die. And, and this, this is all over the span of months and months. It was not quickly, but I came to realize that part of being a Christian is 
entering into suffering. And, you know, honestly, I still don't understand in a full way why the Lord allowed this to be part of my story, but he did. And, um, and I can follow him and I can trust that, um, he's sovereign over this. And so, um, throughout that whole process, um, months, years, um, some dark days, some not so dark days, um, the Lord kept me to himself and it was the Lord's keeping. It was nothing I did, but, um, I got to know God in a way I don't know if I would have if I hadn't walked through this. You've talked about how your healing wasn't a straight line. You didn't go from thanks that Thanksgiving day, just eight, nine years into the future and say, or yeah. And say, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm light years ahead. You've had, you've had one step forward and a couple steps back. Mm-hmm. What are some ways that you found that have been helpful in taking those steps, no matter how small, um, taking those steps forward? Mm-hmm. One of the things that um, really, really helped me was starting to tell people whether that was a counselor, um, a, a huge advocate of counseling, whether that was a counselor or um, an elder at my church or um, starting to open up to a really close group of friends. Um, but when I started to tell people, um, it didn't feel like this huge secret anymore. And there were other people who could check in with me and how I was doing and that could pray for me and with me and could send me scripture and remind me of what I knew to be true, um, and help fix my eyes on Christ when I felt too weak. And when I felt, um, like my faith was failing, they could lend me their faith. And so just by me saying, Hey, this is what's going on, um, allowed me to begin to heal. Um, I think sometimes when we name something, when we say this is actually what's going on, um, it makes it more real in a way. And that's hard to say, this is actually what happened to me. This is what is going on in my life. But it also, um, allows us to start healing. And so that was really instrumental in um, me beginning to heal. Another thing, and and I touched on this, but was praying honestly to the Lord. Um, I am the type of person who, um, and I still struggle with this so much to this day, but who thinks I need to clean myself up before I can present myself to the Lord in prayer, Mm -hmm. Um, which feels so silly sometimes because God knows he already knows what's going on. Um, and so just giving myself and, and for anyone walking through, um, infertility, miscarriage, whatnot, just giving ourselves that freedom to, um, to be honest with the Lord about our hurts. Um, but then also press into him for hope as well. Um, so those are two huge things. Um, that I did that some days, you know, some days I felt like I was, um, you know, he, in Hebrews, it says run the races set before you. Some days I felt like I was just sitting, looking at heaven, knowing it's there. I don't even have energy to walk right now or to crawl, but I see it. Um, and, and having, um, having that reminder that the Lord, um, is present in my life and he is faithful and he was not going to leave me in my darkest days. Um, encourage me that, um, it would be okay 
that I would be okay, that I would not be in that season forever. And um, like I said, it's been nine years. There are days where it is still hard, but I am not, I'm not in that season forever. And God, um, God's mercy is more. So those are just a few things um, that I did that were really helpful. I remember it had to be like eight or nine years ago for us. I remember there was a night that I was trying to go to sleep and I couldn't. I was just so angry and just frustrated at where we were with our journey. And I woke up and pulled out my journal and I just started to um, angrily journal my prayer. Um, But it was the, I think it was the first time that I was actually like, I felt freedom to be angry at God instead of before when I would pray, it would always just be like rehearsing like who I knew he was and that I trusted him. And I kind of skirted around my, my emotions about the whole thing. Mm. And I remember after I wrote it, I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm still here. Like this was, this was okay. Cause I, I mean, I felt closer to, to, to the Lord in that moment. And I didn't feel this distance that I thought for some reason, if I shared my anger, which he already knew about, um, <laughs> that I would feel after. And I didn't. So I just remember like, that was like a, a, a big, a big moment for me when I realized like, Oh, you can be candid with the Lord. Like you mm-hmm. can have, he can handle our anger. And so I love that. I love, I love that too, for you. And just walking through like, Oh, he's big enough to handle this. He just, yeah like a light bulb goes off and you're like, he's probably getting in there, like yep. saying, sitting there going, um, I already knew this. Can you just say it? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> More like you need to know this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of times when we get the news about fertility stuff, it's, it's right when you're trying to have kids, you're married, you're, you're starting this path, but you were 19, you weren't dating anyone or you weren't dating your husband at the time, at least. Yeah. Um, what was that process like whenever you met him Hmm. and you have this, what you feel like is a secret almost from him. Mm -hmm. So my now husband, Michael and I were actually really good friends for a number of years before, um, the stars aligned and we we started dating. (laughs) Um, but I had dated other people, um, and had just been so scared to share this with them. And had shared it with one other person, and it did not go well at all. And so I had that in my head of this person's going to reject me, or this person's not going to handle it well. And um, when I met Michael and we were friends, I had been, I had started to be pretty open with pastors and um, just church members. Um, that I trusted um, about this. And so I was seeking um, wisdom and guidance on on this. And anytime I expressed any fear um, to a friend or an elder about um, sharing this with, um, Lord willing, a future spouse, um, they always told me the same thing. They said, if a man really loves you, this won't matter to him. Um well intended, but they, that's just the message I received over and over and over. So Michael and I had been dating only a couple of months when I told him. And, um, again, we had a, a long existing friendship, but I, I shared with him in a park one night, we were walking back from dinner and I sat down and we were just chatting and I shared with him in a park one night and, um, it was amazing because it did matter to him. And, 
Um, he was so tender and kind to me um, and cared well for me, but it did matter to him. And I got really upset because in my head, in my heart, I thought, well, if you really it love me, that's what exactly it won't matter. And um, my roommate at the time was a professional counselor. And I was actually just telling her, I told Michael, this really matters to him. It's been a couple of weeks and it still matters to him. Um, and I was kind of freaking out at this point and she um, kind of put me in my place. Isn't that the best way to phrase it? Um, she challenged me and said, Chelsea, can you imagine if Michael said, oh, this doesn't matter at all right. and never fully processed it in five, six years into a marriage this really did hit him and it did matter. And then it did not end well um, versus giving him the time and space to process it on the front end. And um, I'm so grateful for her kind of challenging me in that thinking um, because he did love me and that's why it mattered. And so um, it was not easy. Michael and I went through some really hard moments, but um there's one moment um, where he came to me and he was processing through not only um, us not being able to have kids if we got married, but also what adoption would look like. Um, I grew up with adoption being very normal and he just didn't. And so he was also coming to terms with what that would look like for, for us as well. And um, we were getting coffee one day and he sat me down and he said, Chelsea, I've been praying, I've been seeking wisdom and... Um, he said, I've, I've come to realize that being a dad is not about raising a son or a daughter that looks like us. It's about raising a son or a daughter that looks like Christ. Oh, and um, all the waterworks. <laughs> I'm yeah. crying. He was you crying. got a good one there, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. So um, we, we are now married. Um, we don't have children yet. Um, Lord willing, we will adopt. But I was actually really, um, I don't want to be delicate in how I, I say this, but I was very intentional in sharing our story when I did. Um, I know people that have shared stories or written books or whatnot from the perspective of, I once walked through something, but now I have what I want and God put a red bow on my story and it all ended up happily ever after. And that's not always the case. And so I wanted to be really intentional about when I decided to write this book, again, Lord willing, we will adopt, but um, that's not our hope. Our hope is not in children one day. Our hope is in the Lord. And I really wanted to direct people to something greater than our circumstances. So um, Lord willing, we'll have that blessing. But even if we never do, like God is bigger and more faithful than um than that. So, um, Michael is the best man I know, and I'm thrilled that, um, we get to walk this together now. So you also wrote, I think it was one of the most powerful, powerful statements I had read in just the first few chapters. You just jump right in. You say, you said the greatest role of a woman is not to be a mother, but rather to glorify God with our whole lives in whatever circumstances that we find ourselves. Mm-hmm. Because you, you say in your book about a lot of us, I think it's just a general feeling for women that our identity can can be wrapped up in becoming a mom. So tell us tell us what you've learned about that so far. Mm-hmm. So 
again, my story is a little bit unique from others who either miscarry or walk through infertility. There was a big um, red period on my story of it. it is very final for me that I won't have biological children. And so not only wrestling with the Lord in my anger of that, I also wrestled through what it actually meant to be a woman. And if I couldn't bear children, um, was I less than other women that could or could get pregnant or all these different things? I really wrestled through what womanhood is and meant and was meant to be. And I mean, honestly, like my body is a result of the fall. God did design women to have children and my body can't. And it's a result of the fall. But um, my womanhood is not tethered completely to my fertility. Um, I am so greatly encouraged by the story of Joni Erickson Tata. Um, for those that don't know her story, she was in a diving accident when she was, I think she was 16 and is paralyzed from the neck down and um, has been very vocal about her wrestlings with the Lord and her suffering. Um, but she is married and she is one of the strongest Christians I know. And um, even though she's paralyzed from the neck down, she still glorifies the Lord. She is still a woman. She is still a complete human. Um, and so I've, I've been really encouraged by her testimony and her sharing her story of womanhood that looks different than I'm sure she ever thought it would. My womanhood looks different than I ever thought it would, but we are both still women. We are both still image bearers of God. And um, so some people are never going to get married. Some people are never going to be mothers. Some people are never going to um, insert X, Y, or Z that we think we need to be a godly woman or this or that, or what culture tells us we need to, to be a woman. Um, but if we are following hard after the Lord and our heart is on fire for him, we are seeking him. Um, I think that's what makes a true godly woman is a heart that looks like Christ's heart and a life that wants to honor and glorify him. And that can be done in so many different situations and scenarios. It is not tethered to, um, being a wife or a mother. And both of those are extremely good gifts and God-given roles, but they are not ultimate. No matter whether you're single or have five kids, I mean, we are to glorify God in everything that we do. Mm -hmm. And that's what scripture tells us. And that's why my heart is when you walk through this journey, whether it's, you know, permanent like yours, like you say, or you're in the middle of adoption or you're going through treatments, like our, our goal is to glorify him in it. <laughs> so how are you, how are you holding on to hope looking forward into your journey? How are you doing that? Mm, that's such a good question. The thing that gives me the most hope is I know how, I know how the Bible ends. Like we have read the book, we know how it ends. And, um, the last chapters of Revelation are some of my favorites where it says, um, God will dwell with us and we will be with him and he will wipe away all of our tears and suffering shall be no more. Um, we know how it ends and um, keeping the end in mind um, is so important for me as I walk through 
dark days or, um, I mean, life has brought other suffering and, um, we're all going to fall and, um, have hard things in life, but remembering our end and remembering that this life is not all there is, um, really does give me hope as I walk through, um, hard times. Um, so I, I regularly remind myself of, of that end day when all will be redeemed and made new. Um, another thing just really practically, um, in my day to day, um, I frequently remind myself of the promises of God. Um, and this is where I want to be really clear. Um, God never promises me children. That is not a promise I can hang my hat on. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Bible is so full of true promises of God, um, where he promises to be good to his children. He promises to be kind. He promises his presence, his kind, his loving kindness, um, all these different things, um, his faithfulness, all these different things um, we can um, hold back to God and remind him um, and say, God, you promise this in your word. You promise to be faithful, um, uphold your promise to me. Um, so just clinging to those true promises um, versus the, like the wants of life. Like, yes, I do want this good gift, but God never promises us that. So kind of differentiating those two in, in my mind and my prayers of God, I would really like this, but this is where you've actually promised. And so I'm going to uphold you to your promise. So um, that's really helpful for me in my day-to-day life of my prayer life for just journaling out and reminding myself what I know to be true, um, who I know God to be. And um, just this week, I've been studying the book of Romans and in Romans 5, it's talking about God's faithfulness. And I was so encouraged in my heart of um, just again, my, you know, my morning routine study of God's word, um, which sometimes can feel a little routine. God just dropped a nugget and it has been with me all week of his faithfulness and just another really good reminder um, of who he is. And so the more I can um, fix my eyes on him, I think the the less um, the less my heart is um, long-term affected by the trials I walk through. Well, if I could sum up your book in one word, it's not, it's not the most exciting word, but it would be (laughs) comprehensive. Mm -hmm. You cover, you cover so much. You go so deep. You hit every emotion. I mean, it is so good. I could have, I could have asked you questions based on just one chapter Mm -hmm. and it, you just did a great job of allowing God to use your story and to speak into people who are, like you said, the bow isn't, the bow isn't tied. Mm -hmm. Their story isn't over. They're still in the middle of it. And I'm just, I'm so grateful for women like you that are choosing to speak now versus later. Thank you. Thank you. My deepest prayer when I was writing the book was that if I could encourage the heart of one woman and let her know she was not alone um, and she was not forgotten, then it would be worth it. And so um, that is still my prayer daily for the words of the book. Chelsea wrote in her book, In Great Suffering on Earth, There's Great Support from Heaven. Four of the sweetest words ever spoken by God are, I am with you, from Deuteronomy 31.6. Never forget... 
through this great suffering that you're experiencing, there is great support because God is with you. And I love what Chelsea said about hope. We know how it ends. Keep the end in mind. God holds well with us and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. This life is not all there is. It reminded me of something that my mom taught our little Sunday school class when we were, I don't know, probably in first or second grade. But it still sticks out to me as a moment that something clicked in my little brain. It was a really basic, multi-purpose classroom in our little Baptist church. There was no decor on the walls, just four starch white walls and a whiteboard on one of them. My mom took out her red Expo marker and put one little dot on the whiteout board. She turned to us and said, this is your life on earth. And then she motioned to all the white walls, which seemed endless to my tiny little first grade self. She said, this is eternity. And what happens on earth is just a blip on eternity's radar. And I have never forgotten that little Sunday school lesson about eternity. There are moments in this life that seem absolutely unbearable. Just like when Chelsea was told that she would never have kids, and just like when you were told, maybe the devastating news that you would never get to hold the baby that you felt in your womb for months. This is not all there is though. Lean on the support from heaven, from our loving Father, and look towards eternity where, as I've said before, He is gonna wipe away every tear from our eyes and we will get to be in perfect existence with him forever, lacking nothing. Thank you guys for listening and for sharing as always. Go check out Chelsea's book, Longing for Motherhood on Amazon. I promise you, you will be so glad you did. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Joint Infertility Podcast. Isaiah 40, 31 says this, Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Remember, God is with you. He sees your heart. He loves you and he is good. There will be beauty born from your journey. Have a great day.